Good morning, everyone. Our scripture today is taken from Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of our their fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, of which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you get back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, 
And I shall say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did all the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's uh, jump into the word of God this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. Open our hearts and our minds to understand what you are saying to us. And more than just to take in information, Lord, our heart's desire is to be transformed, to be shaped by you, to live for you, God, as your disciples, and to make a difference, Lord, for your kingdom and for your glory. We ask these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would come and transform our hearts and lives. Lord, may you uh, speak to those that are downcast this morning, speak to those that are grieving. Give us your comfort, your peace, your wisdom for living. We thank you for your great love and your salvation for us. And we ask that you would guide our time this morning in your name. Amen. So we're picking up Exodus chapter 4. And this is Moses still meeting with God, and particularly God calling Moses to the task of delivering Israel. And we pick up right away, verses 1 to 5. Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What's in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it, which is pretty reasonable. But the Lord said to Moses, but put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you. What's in your hand? What do you have right here? I have my shepherd's staff. I have the thing I use every day, says Moses. The same thing that I've been holding for 40 years as I've been going about my business here in the wilderness, right? God says, I'm going to use what is already in your hand. 
Now Moses, according to Josephus, was heir to the throne of Egypt. He had tried once before to act like a prince and a judge and had been rejected by the Hebrew people. He was acting at that point as though he was holding the scepter, trying to make something happen by his own power in his own timing. And God said, no, you're not going to do this by way of the scepter. You're going to do this by way of the shepherd's staff. And I love that because that says something about the sort of leadership that God calls his people to bear, particularly us in pastoral ministry and other ministry roles. This is the work of shepherding, not of the scepter. But I also want us to reflect on this question. This is perhaps the main question for us this morning. What has God put in your hand? Moses had a staff, but what's in your hand? Is it a computer? Is it diapers? Is it handling something at the grocery store, pouring coffee for people? What's in your hand? What is the skill or the passion or the tools that God has put close to you? You see, sometimes we don't need to actually look very far for our calling. What's in your hand, Moses? The rod that Moses held was going to be the same rod that would uh, part the Red Sea. Friends, in God, the skills and the tasks that he has given us are transformed to be aligned with God's purposes. Now, I want you to catch that this morning, or whenever you're listening to this. What's in your hand? It may be that the very thing you are going about doing in your daily life is the same which God wants to use for his purposes and for his glory. Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. God says, reach down, pick it up by the tail. Moses is like, uh, come again, right? On one hand, we want God to lead our lives and guide our lives. But the moment things are surprising or unexpected, we can tend to shy away from it. I don't want to do the thing if it seems dangerous. I trust you, God, but maybe you're wrong, right? I'm good. Thanks, God. Remember, the tail is probably the most dangerous place to pick up the snake. If you're going to pick up a snake, you grab it by the neck, right? You grab it by the head so it can't reach out and lash you and get you. But here's the call. When Moses obeys in the small thing, I mean, it may not feel small in the moment, but it's small compared to the liberation of the whole nation, which is to come. When Moses obeys God in this small moment, the snake becomes a rod again. And what is God teaching him? If you can trust me with this small thing, you can trust me with the big things that are to come. Folks, the foundation for the large decisions you need to make in your life is first and foremost, trusting and having a relationship in Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to go about your life, you have to make decisions about where you're going to work, your marriage, your family, your the direction of your life, who you are. The key to that is learning to trust in God, beginning first with a relationship with God. Moses has to understand that obedience flows from a loving and trusting relationship with God. And that is the key for his leadership and his life moving forward. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Do you see the sequence? Commit your way to the Lord. L you know, uh, 
delight in him, trust in him, and he will act. Sometimes we want God to act, but we haven't first learned to trust in him and to walk in obedience with him. Who is this God who is creating and redeeming his world? Who am I? Those questions are absolutely crucial. Who has God made you to be? Sometimes is answered better with what is in your hand and what is God uh, asking you to trust him with. Those are the two things to learn from these first five verses, this sort of staff transformation episode. God wants to use what's in our hands and he calls us to trust in him first in the small things, then in the big. So what friends is in your hand this morning? What is the task that uh, you've been given? And it may, it may not seem very significant, but what is it that God has put before you to do? Or who is it that you are called to love? Where is God inviting you to trust in him? What in your life are you trying to navigate that you need a word from God to know what to do? That's the first point and the first question that this passage asks of us. We move on to the second point, which is the leprous hand episode. I can almost do it with my vest. Verse six, again, the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he's put his hand back in his cloak. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God gives... Moses, uh, four things that he's to do. First, he's to tell them what God said. This is how it starts. Moses says, behold, what if they don't listen to my voice, right? What if they don't hear the word of God first? Then God says, okay, if they don't listen first to the word, do the staff thing. And if that doesn't work, do the hand thing. And if that doesn't work, take the water from the Nile and it'll turn to blood. And I think there's a pattern here about what happens when we are called to embrace God in our lives. The first thing is we are called to believe God's word. God wants Moses to first speak his word to Pharaoh. Pharaoh needs to learn to hear and obey God's word. Let my people go. This is the first call. It doesn't start with plagues. It doesn't start with the signs. It first starts with hearing God speak and responding hopefully responding to that call. Pharaoh needs to to first hear the call to let the people go. And if he doesn't, God says, do the staff thing and do the hand thing. In the staff, that which is dangerous is transformed into something tame. And in the hand, that which is leprous and diseased is transformed at the place of the heart. And both are speaking of God's redemptive, transformative power in the world. The staff is going to turn into a snake. This is another point. Why a snake? Why not an eagle or like a dragon or a buffalo or something? And what's often characterized when you think of Egypt, right? What's on the head of the, of the, of the, the the headpiece? Often you see a snake, right? God is showing his power over Pharaoh 
and over Egypt by transforming the symbol of the snake. And of course, also the evil spiritual forces at work behind Egypt. Um, of course, in the telling of the story of humanity's fall, right? It's the serpent-like creature who pictures those demonic forces at work. And we see it again here. And we'll see that serpent again now as the full-blown dragon in Revelation. In all those instances, the Bible is painting the picture of God through Christ coming to destroy the serpent's work and to reconcile all things to himself through his death. And so the snake, which is the picture for Egypt, is under the authority of God as it's transformed back and forth. But first, Pharaoh has the opportunity to respond to the word of God. If not that, he's given two signs, the transformation of the staff and the transformation of the hand. He'll see the power of God's transformation. If you don't believe his word, then believe the transforming work. And particularly, this is Yahweh's power over the gods of Egypt, which we're going to see as we get to those passages. But this is true for us also. If you have friends or family that maybe don't believe the word of God, Maybe they've heard the word, but they've chosen not to receive it. Then the second call for them is to see the love of Christ in the transformation work of him in your life. Do they see in you how God has reshaped your character and your heart? Do they see how your serpent-like attitudes, your leprous-like attitudes have become tamed and healed and transformed as you have abided in the love of God. God's work here is transforming a dangerous thing into peace and the dying into living. This is the work of God, right? Can these old bones live? All about transformation. Jesus, they've run out of wine at the wedding. Transformation. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit within you. Transformation. Are we open to the Spirit's transforming work in our lives? So Pharaoh is told to hear the word of God. He's then given the sign of transformation. And hopefully in seeing that transformation, his heart will be turned to let his people go. Let Israel go. And in our own lives, we are called to express with our words who Jesus is and to share our faith with others. But if they don't respond to that word, we don't give up. Indeed, they may see Jesus at work by witnessing the transformation of our hearts, where the brokenness has been transformed by Christ. I, and I remember stories of this, people saying, I had such a temper, or I had this addiction, and then I came to Jesus, and he began to heal me of this. I began to experience the peace of the spirit. I didn't lash out the way I used to. Or I started to feel my cravings and addictions change. And I was able to put that addiction aside as I came to Christ. We are meant as disciples, folks, to be transformed, to see, uh, to be um, evidencing, intuiting the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. The fruit of him within us, love, joy, peace, and so on, is meant to be evident. And so even as we go about our lives, there is a call to speak the word of God, but there's also a call to, to bear witness to the transformative power of Jesus within us. Pharaoh, and just like this, Pharaoh is called to hear the word of God and to see transformation. So are the people around us to hear the word of God, but also to see the difference that Jesus has made in our lives, the transformation. Now, of course, 
If Pharaoh doesn't respond to the word and he doesn't respond to the signs of transformation, what's the third thing? It's the sign of judgment, the water becoming blood. And notice it doesn't turn back. And judgment, it's hard for us to swallow, isn't it? How can God do that? If you won't receive his word, if you don't respond, there is a judgment awaiting. And I was going to cover this topic in our Tough Questions series that we did uh, a few weeks ago. Why should I believe in heaven and hell? Why should I believe that God will judge us? And how could God, if he's good, allow people to go to hell, to spend an eternity apart from him? And I want to address this question by playing this clip from Dr. Frank Turek. And uh, he does a great job of framing uh, this question for us. So let's watch this clip from, from Frank together. You can do whatever you want. That's why you have free will. God loves you enough to give you free will. You can love him or reject him. That's up to you. (laughs) But on that point, you do have the free will to accept or reject God. But the obvious conclusion is that rejection of God will lead to eternal damnation in hell. So in reality, we do not really have the choice to accept or not to accept God. We must ultimately accept God, assuming we choose to avoid perdition. Well, if you want to avoid, well, let me back up for a second. There's only two possibilities if God exists. In eternity, you're going to be with him or you're not going to be with him, right? That's logically the only two options. If you want to be with him, you will seek him out and be with him. If you don't want to be with him, God will not force you into his presence against your will. In fact, let me make the objection stronger than what you're making it. You're very polite, but I debated an atheist who was a little bit more direct. And, and let me uh, tell you, this man was a, he's a good man. I like him. His name is Eddie Tabash. He's an attorney from Beverly Hills. We debated at University of Michigan a number of months ago. And he looked at me during the Q&A and he said, Frank, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived an awful life. Somebody presented her with the gospel and she rejected it. Is she in hell right now? I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is. I don't know if she made a profession of faith in her last moments. But if she didn't, then God will not force her into his presence against her will. God is too loving for that. And I asked the audience this question. In fact, I'll ask you as an audience this question. Ladies, is there anybody in here who's ever had a man pursue you And you did not want that man to pursue you. You did not want to date him. Anyone in here? Of course. In fact, some of you are going, yeah, he's sitting right next to me right now. He won't leave me alone. (laughs) I said, okay, ladies, suppose this man continues to pursue you and continues to pursue you. And you say, look, I only like you as a friend. Ladies, why don't you just take the knife, stick it in, and turn it? Because every man in here has heard this. I like you, but only as a friend. Well, suppose he continues to pursue you, continues to pursue you. And he gets to the point where he says, look, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Can he do that? No, he can't do that. Love, by definition, must be freely given. So if he truly did love you, what would he do? He would leave you alone. That's exactly what God does. He keeps sending us cards, letters, and flowers while we're here. And if we keep rejecting him, keep rejecting him, he gives us up to our own desires. And that is ultimately what hell is. Hell is separation from God. So you're free in hell. You can continue to 
reject God in hell, but you're confined to hell. In fact, hell is a quarantine of evil. That's what it is. And heaven, of course, is being in the very presence of God. God loves you too much to force you into his presence against your will. Thanks, Carter. God will not force you into a relationship with him. If you say, God, I don't want you all of your life, eventually God will give you what you have asked for. C.S. Lewis said that hell is actually a picture of God's mercy because he's actually honoring our free will to say no to him and choosing to be separated from him. So hell is not constructed to scare people into heaven. This is about choosing a life with God or without God. And God loves you too much to force you to love him. Love, by definition, has to be freely given. And that's how we as Christians understand the concepts of heaven and hell. We can choose. Our free will is paramount to our being human. We can choose to either be with God or not to be. And God will honor that choice. Pharaoh is given the choice here to hear the word of God. And if that doesn't take to respond to the acts of transformation. And if not that, then we head towards the territory of judgment and Pharaoh needs to realize he's choosing to separate himself from God and that comes with repercussions and it's the same folks in our own lives. God gives us the opportunity to turn to him, but he also gives us the free will not to live for him. And at some point, there will be a judgment, whether we are still guilty and actively against God in our sin, or we have embraced the forgiveness and life of Jesus, our Lord will make a difference. And one of the most, I think, trying things for me as a pastor is seeing people who are, who are frustrated with God and frustrated with their lives, um, but they, they don't really take the steps to actually change their life. And so they're frustrated with God that he hasn't done certain things, but they choose not to live for him anyway, right? It's like, I'm upset. I'm going to blame God for the problems in my life, but I'm actually not even going to try to live for him anyway. You know, it's, it's frustrating. But if you want peace today, come to Jesus. If you want rest for your soul, come to Jesus. If you want to be a good father, or a good mother, or a good husband or wife, come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Own it. And believe that Christ has come to set you free. Repent and believe and receive the salvation of God today. This is the most important thing I could ever preach to you, is to give your life to Jesus. And I pray that if you're watching this and you haven't done that today, that you will choose to give your life to Jesus and say, Lord, I repent of my sin. I'm not living for you, but I choose today to follow you. I want to love you and abide in you. So all of this, the signs, the word, is part of Moses' call from God to bring to Pharaoh. And now we arrive at verses 10 to 12, where Moses brings up his insecurities for the mission that God's given to him. Moses basically says, um, I can't speak good. I'm not really eloquent. And this is it's probably not entirely true. It seems later that Moses can speak just fine. Um, you know, he spent his years in the royal court. He probably actually knew how to do this, but he's lost his confidence 
Or maybe he's making, maybe he's looking for an excuse. We don't know. Whether that's true or not doesn't actually matter because God says he will meet the place of our need. As we engage in our calling as Christians, as we seek to bring the word, as we seek to live lives of transformation, we will find moments where we feel insecure about who we are. We will feel incompetent uh, for the task before us. And God says here, don't worry about it. Verse 14, the Lord said, who made man's mouth? I'll be with you. I'll teach you what to say. This is so like us. God, I can't do the thing. God says, you're right, you can't. But who cares? God's calling is enabling. My calling is enabling for you. You think your lack of eloquence is there. That's beside the point, right? God, I married a crazy person. I can't do it. God says, if you let me, I will guide you into a healthier relationship. Will you trust me? God, the kids are crazy. God says, I've called you to this life I will help fulfill you to embrace it. My calling is enabling. Will you trust me? God, the finances are bad. God says, will you trust me? God, the cancer is back. God says, will you trust me? God reveals his sovereignty and power through the mute, the speaking, the deaf, the blind. What a stunning statement. And I love what Pastor David Guzik says here. He says, What's amazing here is it's not fatalism. It's not like God is saying, I'm so mighty and you can't do anything. Rather, God is so mighty that he can work even through me and you in our apparent weakness. Some people think this is about God's cruelty, but that's not the point. The point is God is sovereign, even in our supposed brokenness, to see his purposes to completion. Your apparent weaknesses do not hinder God's promises or God's purposes. What you see as a weakness does not get in the way of what God wants to do for you. He can use all of us, even those of us that feel we're weak. And all of us have been called by God to live for him. Most of us feel we don't measure up, feel we can't do it. But here's the truth for us today. The problem is never your ability. It's our lack of trust in God. By faith, we make ourselves available to God, and that's it. Moses is complaining about his lack of ability, his confidence, his commitment. He wasn't making himself truly available to God. He actually just doesn't want to do it. He's trying to find excuses. And this is so often a picture of our hearts. We run away from the task. We wish God had sent someone else when God has actually prepared us to live out the task that he's called us to. Again, as Reverend Guzik points out so well, he said, God is not interested in your ability so much as your availability. Are you making yourself available to God today? God gives us that ability to choose to follow him. He enables us to be called. But are we willing to actually be used by him? Are we making ourselves available? Available to see what's in our hands as part of God's calling. Many, many of you are probably living out your calling right now and you don't even know it, right? We can say, I'm not available or I am available. Are we making ourselves available to God in this season of life? And this is what God is trying to draw out of Moses in this whole exchange. And he's asking us this morning, what's in your hand? 
Will you make yourself available to be used by me? It doesn't mean we can't ask questions of God. Moses asked a number of questions. Who am I? Who are you? What do I say? God wasn't angry that Moses had questions about it. None of those questions kindled God's anger. You know what actually made God angry in this exchange? It was when Moses refused to trust God. He refused to make himself available. And that's when God's anger was kindled. Verse 13, Moses says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. I don't want this. I'm not available. And that's when the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Folks, we have an obligation as disciples of Jesus to make ourselves available. God created you. Jesus died to redeem you. We owe it to him. Even if you don't believe in Christ, God still made you. It's still, he's still, you're still his. And somehow we often think if we make ourselves available to God and, and we, we say, yes, God, I want to respond to your calling, that somehow it's a trap, like God's waiting to kind of ring us around or somehow if we just made ourselves fully available to God, he's going to somehow destroy our lives. You know, he's going to mess us up. That's a twisted view of God. That God, what God wants for you is good. God loves you. And God's calling in your life is in line with who God made you to be. I'm an introverted person. God has called me into pastoral ministry. I didn't expect that. There's an element of extroversion that's involved in, in pastoral ministry. But the way in which God has wired me as an introvert, part of my love of reading and study, um, my drawing to spiritual formation, uh, has equipped me well for the ministry he's given me. Um, for others who maybe who are very extroverted, they lean into the extroverted aspects of pastoral ministry very well, but some of the maybe introverted aspects are a little harder for them. I've never found in my life as God has called me as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, all along the way, God has prepared me and shaped me to live out that calling well, as I lean into him and try and trust him. And sometimes I, I'm surprised not knowing that I actually fit that role better than I expected. God's actually knows me better than we know ourselves. Surprise, surprise, right? Verse 18 to 20, Moses tells Jethro. Moses was unwilling. God says, fine, I'll send Aaron. We'll go get this done. And finally, Moses goes and tells Jethro. Look at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Moses, or Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. I think this is important. We don't want to miss this. He actually comes down off the mountain. Moses actually leaves the scene and got going with what God had called him to do. Sometimes we don't do this very well, right? We have a dramatic encounter with God. He speaks, you cry, you read the Bible, it's awesome, or whatever. And then we actually don't act on it. We jump in our car and we go home and we forget it. Or we want to camp at the burning bush instead of living out the call that God has given us. I remember when we used to do family camp uh, as a teenager, and these were great times, uh, youth retreats, same thing. These are mountaintop experiences. 
um, kind of a spiritual high and then it would be over and it would almost be like a bit of a letdown, right? You're back to work or back to school, back to a sense of weekly worship and it just wouldn't feel the same. And instead of, of taking what, what we learned at the camp, what God had called us to and seeking to live that out, sometimes we complain that the regular life didn't feel like the camp experience. And I think there's something here for us where we recognize we can't stay at the burning bush all day. God doesn't call Moses to camp at the burning bush. He calls him to go. What do the disciples do at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? As Jesus is revealed in his glory, he says, well, let's set up some tents. Let's camp here in the spiritual high. Let's camp in this moment. But where does Jesus go? Jesus comes back off the mountain, back into the crowds who need him, back into the brokenness, back to minister to those that are sick and in need of God. Friends, we're not called to live on a mountaintop of spiritual ecstasy all day long. Yes, we'll have those moments. Yes, they are wonderful and beautiful and given by God, but we are called to follow Jesus back down the mountain into mission, into bringing uh, in our daily life the calling and, and the ministry that God has given us among the people. That's what Jesus does. Remember, the Mount of Transfiguration is the revelation of Jesus' divinity, but it's back down the mountain and then up to the cross where Jesus' glory is revealed. And we are called to bear our crosses and follow him on that road. And that's what Moses does. He leaves the burning bush. He leaves the spiritual high. He's given a mission from God. And then he starts the quest that God has given him. He comes down the mountain. Verses 19 to 23. I'm heading out on the mission. And once he's decided to head out, God says, Okay, this is going to be harder than you think. You're going to show Pharaoh the signs. It won't be enough. Pharaoh's not going to do it. God is preparing Moses for the struggle that's to come. And the hardening of hearts bit, we'll get there later on. Um, But God is basically letting Pharaoh's free will have reign and choosing to walk with what Pharaoh wants to do. And I want to end with this very strange part at the end of chapter 4 here. Verse 24 and onward, this part is just kind of like, what? Feels really out of nowhere, right? (laughs) This whole issue of the circumcision of their son, Verse 24 says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. What? After all this calling and all of this stuff, suddenly Moses is in the wrong and God starts to deal with it. What is this about? What is this? I don't, I'm not going to pretend to understand all of it, but I'm going to try and explain it the best that I can. And the way I understand it is this. Moses, as a Hebrew, should have known that they needed to circumcise their firstborn son. Moses is in disobedience. They hadn't done this. And they would have known, not just their firstborn son, but their sons, they would have known that this is part of God's uh, covenant with Abraham, was that you do this circumcision. And for some reason, they hadn't done it. And maybe Zipporah had resisted it, right? She's not a Hebrew after all. Maybe Moses just think it doesn't really matter. We don't know. But here's the thing. They started to live out the calling of God And God said, stop, you better get in obedience. 
And he brings it about in such a way that Zipporah is the one who actually has to do the circumcision, right? And if that's the scenario here, I think it tells us something very important. When we have a calling on our lives, obedience is not less important, it's more important. And this sobered me up this week, and I was just thinking, especially being in leadership, it actually drove me to repentance to realize, like, yes, God, you've called me to this role to pastor this church well, to try and um, lead your people well, to shepherd these people well, but I need to make sure uh, I'm walking in obedience to you, God. Both my own personal life, my home life, that stuff matters. Obedience to God matters. And it, it just made me really just walk through some repentance this week and, of just being aware of um, what's going on in my own life, right? And and I can't just lead, you know, that God cares about that. I can't just lead well and do, you know, we can just go about our work lives and go about ministry life, but maybe stuff at home is just rotten or I'm dealing with a, an addiction that I haven't told anyone about, right? Or I've just got this sin that I keep going to or something, right? Like God wants all of us and, and we like to kind of separate and segment out our lives, but God wants us to walk in obedience. And I think that's part of what's getting, what's going on here. And then we get to the end, verses 27 to 31 of this chapter. The children of Israel finally uh, meet their deliverer. Moses shows them the signs. The people believe that God will bring it to pass in Moses. You know, 40 years before they had rejected him. Now they've accepted him, which is awesome. They've accepted God's transforming power at work. They believe it and they, they go to worship. And so Israel accepts the one whom they once had rejected. And friends, Jesus Christ is our deliverer. And maybe you've rejected him before, or maybe you're pushing him away right now for whatever reason. Now is the time to accept him. Jesus transforms our lives. He's here in our midst. And I encourage you to believe on him and open your heart to him today. And just say, Lord, I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to push you away anymore. I want to accept you. I want to receive you. Maybe you've been pushing God away lately. I don't know. But I just encourage you today to stop running from him. Come to Jesus and open your heart to repent and to believe. This is, we wrap this up, friends. Here's the, here's the main points for us today. What's in your hand? What is it that God has called you to? What is it that God wants you to use for him? What's your calling? What's your vocation? And what is your heart? Are you pursuing God or are you pushing God away? Have you seen God's transformation in your life and in the lives of those around you? Are you hungry for that? Let's come down from the mountain and enter into the life and mission of Jesus. Let's open our hearts to our deliverer for worship and start to live for him today. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can learn from this call of Moses. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see what's in our hands, to use that for your glory. Lord, whatever it is, caring for people, going about our, our, our daily lives, our job, the power tool in our hands, the computer keyboard in our hands, the diapers that need to be changed, the taxes that we need to work on, the Excel spreadsheets that we're filling out, whatever it is, Lord, answering the phone. Lord, may we use what's in our hands for your glory. And would you call each one of us, Lord, to the task that you have prepared for us? 
We pray that as we would go, your word would be on our hearts. We would be able to model and live out the transformation that you desire to bring about in our lives and in our world. And Lord, I just thank you that you work on us over the long haul. Moses waited 40 years for this calling. Um, God, you are, your timing's perfect. And I just pray that for those that maybe feel downcast or wondering what, what, where life's taking them or what's going on in their lives, that you would bring encouragement and comfort, Lord, to live for you in this moment. Lord, I thank you that as a church, we are called in this moment to live for you, to come out of our church buildings and out into the world and live for you beyond the four walls of the church building, to come down the mountain and engage in the mission of living among real people and bringing your life and your gospel to bear in their world, in their lives. Lord, would you give us vision? Would you encourage us each day? We pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit as we seek your face as a church. And Lord, with the words that you taught us, we just pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I've been interested in the whole question of vocation, work, and career. And how does one navigate the transitions of one's life and take work seriously and discern what is God's call in my life? If you're going to discern your vocation right, there are six prior questions you need to be able to ask. And it sounds like a lot at six, but in actual fact, if you can answer these six questions, you're probably going to be good to go. first question is, what on earth is God doing? That is, where, what captures your imagination when you get a sense of the God who is the creator and redeemer of all things is at work in our world? And that more than likely, you need to have a broad perspective on this. Secondly, you need to ask the question, who are you? There's no avoiding that for many people, the biggest obstacle to vocational discernment is the self-knowledge question. And that self-knowledge is the essential precursor to vocational discernment. God's calling in your life will be consistent with how God made you. Self-knowledge then becomes liberating. Who are you? And the crucial piece, I say to people, especially in midlife, is you come to the stage where you don't wish you were anybody other than who you are. This is humility and this is freedom. To name the reality, this is who I am, and to not wish you were anybody other than who you are before God. The third question is the stage of life question. Because a person in his 20s or a person in her 30s or 40s or 60s will discern vocation differently. Fourthly, what are your circumstances? And here the crucial thing is to name reality in a hope-filled way, not nostalgically, not regretfully, but to realize that your vocation is always historically located. So what is, this, what is the context in which you have been located? The fifth question is, what is the cross that you have been called to bear? All vocation will have a cruciform character to it. If we follow Christ, it will involve cross-bearing. And then the sixth question is, and you're not going to be surprised at this, what are you afraid of? The greatest obstacle to fulfilling your vocation is internal, not external.
Friends, as you go today, receive this benediction. Children of God, loved and forgiven in our Lord Jesus Christ, may you take that which is in your hand and use it for God's glory. May you hear the voice of God who calls you to live for him in the midst of whatever circumstances you face. And may you go with God down the mountain to live out your faith among the people in your life, bringing God's word to bear and the transformation of his Holy Spirit to bear in their lives as we seek to follow Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Friends, we love you. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.